0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we got we got some work to do, so let's just get to it. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, and I hope that you brought them. We do have the scripture up on the screen. Typically, however, um, it's good practice to just know know your Bible, know where things are, to be able to flip through it. I know in this electronic age, I've got the Bible on my my phone. I've see it on screens, it's everywhere, but just to, to hold the Bible and to know where things are in relation to other things, it's just so important to know the Scriptures, and one of the ways to do that is to have a hard copy, I know these things are like dinosaurs now, um, but... Bring your Bible, flip through the pages, know it uh, we 're not going to have all of the verses on the screen as I address them and so if you 're wanting to reference those you 're going to be needing to look in your Bible. Um, so turn in your Bibles to galatians chapter four we 've got a long text we 've got a lot of a lot of theology and a lot of practical application, a lot of philosophy to work through um, so we, we're just going to read the entire text at one time, one block. It's a long text, and then I'll just be referring back to it just so you, you kind of get an idea of what's going on. Uh, we're not going to even stand for the whole text. We're going to stand for the first part of the text, which is where we're going to spend most of our time, and then we'll be seated and we'll read the rest. Um, but if you are in Galatians 4, go ahead. Um, I'm going to pray, and then, and then we'll stand and read God's word. God, you are good, and you love us, and you want us to know you, you want us to know who we are in you, and so if you've revealed yourself through uh, your word and through Jesus, who we learn about in your word, and I pray that as we search and explore uh, this text, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we would trust you and love you more, and that you would do a work in us this morning, uh, and it's in your name that we pray, amen. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Galatians 4 and stand with me. Uh, We're going to read verses 8 through 11 together, and then you can go ahead and be seated, and I'll read uh, the rest. Um, And so, starting in verse 8, Paul says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now... That you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Those are strong words, and, and so I want us to sit there, and, and as we sit, let those resonate. Let, let what Paul is saying um, resonate in your, in your minds. What Paul, what we're addressing right now is so big that Paul says, the fact that you may not get it may be an indication, verse 11, I may have labored over you in vain. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Woman, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And that is a lot. a lot. And so what I want to do right now is just to tell you that we're going to be going in a pattern that is kind of unusual for me. I'm going to in the very beginning, we're going to stop. I'm going to talk to uh, those of you who are here and maybe doubters or skeptics, uh, and also legalists. Let's. Um, quite interesting to me that doubters, skeptics, atheists, agnostics, and legalists have so much more in common than they they know. So we're going to talk to you. And then we're going to break into talking about what all of this means for us who are believers. Um, And so in all of that, Uh, there's going to be opportunity for your mind to drift. I know, my mind drifts all the time. I take no offense in it, no worries. Your mind may drift, you may lose focus for a little bit and then hop back in with us. All of that being said, what I want to tell you is that there is one main point, that if you walk away with this one main thing, you'll be okay. You'll have gotten it. And I want to give it to you up front. This is what this text is saying. And, and, and it's this. The main point is that Jesus is saving us out of slavery and into God's family. I'll say it again. Jesus has saved us and is saving us out of slavery and into God's family. And in order for us to really grasp what that means, we have to unpack a few things. Uh, Words like slavery and family, for example. We have to unpack what it means to be a slave, what it means to be in slavery, in bondage. And I want to present to you uh, one statement that I think sums up exactly uh, what Scripture says about slavery and family. There are two places you are. You are either in Christ or you are in bondage. You're in slavery. And so what that means is that, well, let me stop for a second. Some of you may be saying this, and this is the common understanding, the common thought of our culture, that somehow to be a Christian, to be born again, to be Bible believing that that's slavery. That's bondage. It's all rules and it's all regulations and it's all hate. That That's what we see as the prevalent thought in our culture. Um, it is binding to be in Christ. Uh, but the reality is that everything else is. Everything else is binding. Um, if you are ruled by science, or if you are ruled by your own pleasure, those are slavery. But Christ is freedom, and I want to prove that to you. And so I want to explain a little bit about what slavery is, where it comes from, how it manifests itself, how it takes root in our lives, and how we get trapped in it. Uh, And so in order to do that, we want to look at this first minor point. Uh, And that is this, that slavery is a consequence Of idolatry. How is Christianity not slavery while everything else is? Uh, The answer is that Christianity points us to the true God. And it calls us to worship Jesus who is the true God. Everything else calls us to worship things that are not by nature God look at what Paul says in verse 8 and 9 verses 8 and 9 he says formerly when you did not know God you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods but now that you've come to know God or rather be known by God how can you turn back to the weak and worthless principles those weak and worthless things and so here's the implication is that When you do not know God, when you do not worship God as God, you worship other things as God. You were created for worship. This is a reality that everyone knows. You were created for ultimate things. You were created to give ultimate things, ultimate priority in your life. And so all of us do that. Now the problem is that if we do not know God, We give ultimate priority to things that are not ultimate. And that shifts them all out of place. And so what happens is that we now begin to have to serve these things. Uh, A base definition for idolatry that we've given before, and I want to give again is this, that um, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God thing, right? Right? You've heard this before. I've said it before. I'm fairly certain Brad has said it before. It bears repeating, though. um, When you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, that's idolatry. And idols always become slave masters. Think about it. If you take a good thing, dominion, Dominion is a good thing. When I say dominion, I mean authority and rule. God created us, and he gave us dominion over the earth. But when you take dominion, and you take that good thing, and you make it a God thing, it becomes a slave master. When all you seek is power, there's never enough of it. In your whole life, you are enslaved to getting more power, With everything else, it's work harder, do more, bear more weight, increase your burden. Because with everything else, the goal is just out of reach. Think about that. How much power is enough? Absolute power. But absolute power is always just out of reach. And so we abuse people. We abuse the earth. We abuse this good gift. We take this good gift that God has given us and distorted it. Family. Family is another great example. Look, all these things are good things, right? Dominion is a good thing. Family is a good thing. God told us, be fruitful and multiply. God gives us commands for raising and being a part of family. To be in family is a good thing, but when we take that good thing and we make it, a God thing that's a bad thing, right? And we see that all the time. Fathers, you're meant to have your children uh, to obey. They're meant to be in order. Your household is meant to be in order. But when you take that good thing and, and you make it the highest thing, you spend all of your life bearing down on your children. Nothing they do is ever good enough because the perfection of family is unattainable. And so you beat down on your children until they do what? They hate you. They resent you. This is exactly why Scripture says, look, don't provoke your children to anger. Because the opposite effect of what you think will happen always does. Because family is not a God to be worshipped. Mothers, you need to realize this. Some of you make your family, your children, your house, the perfect house, an idol. And that's a good thing to have a good home that is in a good state, that is welcoming to people, that is good for hosp- hospitality. Um, that's a good thing. However, when you make, let's just say, the home an idol, you are willing to sacrifice money time your heart oftentimes your children even more often your husband at the altar of having a perfectly kept home at the altar of having children that are perfect and then what happens You have invested your entire identity in having this perfect thing. And then, when your children grow up and go off their rocker and they do everything that you trained up your child in the way that they should go so that they wouldn't do, all of a sudden you're in despair. Because for 18 years, you were a slave to children, a slave to family, a slave to managing a household. And it's a God and an idol that can't be attained. Husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, all get this. Understand this. Do not make an idol of your spouse or of your household or of your family. I'm actually kind of glad that the children went back. I was trying to figure out how this next one would play out. But sex. Sex is a good and gracious gift from God that daily we ought to praise him for. However, when we take that good thing and we make it a God thing, we distort it. And it's never enough. It's never enough sexual partners. It's never enough pornography. It's never enough freedom, quote-unquote. It's never enough, and you become a slave to your lust. You become a slave to your desires, and those of you who are currently enslaved in it or have previously been ensnared in it and are constantly fighting that off. You know that that's the case. You know it's the truth. It's never enough. You always want more. Because it's a slave master that's never satisfied. You've taken a good thing, you've distorted it, you've perverted it, and it rules over you. Food. It's the same way. We worship food as a culture. And it's never fried enough. It's never sweet enough. It's never covered in enough saucy goodness. It's never bountiful enough. Right? As a church, we have these biannual a you know, biannual opportunities to either worship food or worship God. We call them potlucks, right? And we say bring enough for your family and a little bit more. And what a little bit more means is all the food that you could possibly imagine and let's bring it into the house of the Lord and let's worship it together, right? That's that's, that's kind of what potlucks often become, right? Like, oh, I'll, I'll bring a little bit extra than my family of two needs. And so I'll bring three bowls of mashed potatoes, 12 buckets of fried chicken, whatever it is, and it's never enough, and you keep eating, and with food, as with sex and family and power, when you feel pain in your life, um, or when you feel out of control, where do you turn? You turn to your idol, and it's never enough, and it never satisfies you, and you always feel worse than when you began. Science, knowledge, right? There's never enough knowledge. like There's science, which is a good thing. God has called us to know more about the earth. Um, Christians, uh, especially ones who have been um, influenced and immersed in this pseudo-Christian culture, science is not our enemy. It's a good and gracious gift from God. However, the problem is that when you make science or the quest for knowledge god and that's an easy one to do it like the quest never ends there's never enough knowledge because there's always questions behind the discoveries right and it's awesome and and you hopefully you've all heard about the god particle by now and if you're not excited about it you're probably not a nerd like me but you should be excited about. It. This is really cool. And for me, um, I'm a philosophy guy first, and then I love like um, theoretical physics. I love science, kind of like a distant second. But with philosophy, I, I love to talk about the fact that atheists, it's not that they don't worship anything, they worship something, that something is called nothing. And now we know that nothing has mass. Like, this is great because I can finally say, see, there is weight to what you're worshiping. It's nothing. And you're pursuing it with everything you have. And it will never satisfy because there's never enough knowledge. There's never enough evidence. There's never enough. It's a slave master. Alcohol. Uh-oh. <laughs> Alcohol is a good and gracious gift from God. That's why Jesus turned water into wine at the party. And that's why they broke bread and drank the fruit of the cup, right? The fruit of the the vine. Sorry, not the fruit of the cup. That'd be metal uh, or stone, I guess, then. However, he drank with his disciples When you worship alcohol, though, when you come to seek the effects of alcohol over the gracious gift and acknowledging the giver of the gift and using it in the way that God has permitted us to, right? What does the scripture say? Wine's a mocker. Why? Because you have too much of it and you look like a fool because it controls you says don't get drunk don't be a lover of strong drink don't make alcohol your god because when you worship alcohol trust me you are willing to sacrifice everything for it and you see it all the time people sacrifice their families they sacrifice their freedom in a in a citizen sense because they drink too much of it and they do stupid things because alcohol is a slave master if you worship it, right? And so we trust God and we use his good gifts within the confines that he's given for us. And then there's the law, and this is what Paul is getting at here. Some of you worship obedience to the law, so much so that when I said alcohol was a good gift from God, you might have turned me off. Oh, that guy probably drinks. Here's the thing: is that what Paul says is that you did not know God, and because of that, you were enslaved to nature to those that by nature are not gods. And what is he talking about here? He's not talking about all of the things that I address. I'm saying we can apply this to that text. He is talking very specifically about the law. And he says that you have been, you've come to be known by God. How can you turn back to those weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and years. That's a, that's a law thing. That's a ceremonial law thing he's talking about. And then he says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And here's the thing. Of all the things that you can become a slave to, perhaps the most dangerous is becoming a slave to the law. Becoming a slave to obedience. Because in all of those other things, there comes a point where you reach the bottom. And you realize, man, I'm a slave to alcohol, and it cost me my family, it cost me my job, it cost me my life. I'm a slave to money, and it's cost me my soul. But when you're a slave to the law, man, you think you're great. And this is why I say that atheists and agnostics have so much in common with legalists. Because you have both taken something that is by nature, not God, and you've worshipped it. You've taken something that is a good gift from God, and you've turned it into God. Remember, idolatry always makes a good thing a God thing. So some of you are in bondage to it. And some of you still don't believe it. Some of you still don't. You've heard that. You're saying, I I still don't buy it. I I, I need more. Well, I anticipated that. Um, So, here's the thing. The reason that idols always make us slaves is because they pull us out of the confines that God called us to live in, the parameters by which God... Created us to live, and they put us in places where we were never intended to be. They they flip, they flip life on its head. Do you see that? If there is one God, and God has created us, and God is called to worship Him as God, and that is the center of who we are. If our purpose is found in that, and we take something that is not God and make it God, then everything we have is switched. Everything we have is backwards. And it's, it's like this sort of fable where there's a young eagle, and the young eagle sat perched on his cliff, and he looked out at the skies, and he was bored. He was restless. And his father, Eagle, came to him. And he said, Father, I'm tired of the skies. It's a prison. I want to go down there. The father said, no eagle can fly in the sea. There is no freedom there. There is only death. And the young Eagle said, those are lies meant to keep me in chains. And when his father flew off, he flew out and determined that he would have ultimate freedom in the sea. And so he dove down as fast as he could. And with joy in his heart, he hit the water. And very quickly, that joy changed to fear as he was covered in water, as his wings didn't work The way they should, as he couldn't breathe the way he used to be, and by the time he realized it it was too late. He turned upwards towards the sky, but there was nothing he could do. See, the young eagle was free. He had the entire sky to fly. He had all of creation at his fingertips or his wingtips. Those are something to you. Never mind. (laughs) But he had the entire sky to fly and to be free, and he wanted the one thing that he was not meant to have, and when he took it, he didn't find freedom. He found death. God has created a space for you to live in a space for you to rule and be free. And freedom only truly exists within that space. When we move out of that space, when we create idols, when we say sex between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage is not freedom, and we turn to other things, we find ourselves drowning in the waters of slavery when we say that money is a good gift from God meant to be used for His glory and not our gain and that we shouldn't love it, we are free to do with money as we choose. We are not bound by it. But when we worship money and when we say, this will provide what I need, this will give me satisfaction, we find ourselves full of greed or full of debt and waiting in the waters of slavery and death. And when we look at the law, which was given so that we would know how a person ought to, how the world ought to function, right? That's the great gift of God's law. It's not a bad thing. It just cannot save you. And so when you look at that and say, the law is a great response to people who have been graciously saved by a loving and faithful God, there's freedom. But when you make the law God, there's only slavery and death. And you've taken that good thing. You've made it a bad thing. Now, here's the thing. Is it was a good thing in the beginning. And that this is actually point two. Even our idols were created to point us to God. God didn't create idols. We turned them into idols. But those things that we made idols were created to point us to God. Uh, we're going to have to skip a little bit, and I'll make this aside. Um, verses 12 through 20 don't seem to fit in the argument. Um, and here is why Paul put it there. I have to make this plug, I'm, I may have made it before. Uh, the Meaning of Marriage is one of the greatest books that I've ever read. It's The Meaning of Marriage by uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. Um, it is the first marriage book that I've read that it might be equally or maybe even more important for non-married people to read it as married people. But all of you should. It's a book about the gospel, first and foremost, and then about how God designed marriage uh, with that in mind. It's, It's tremendous. I cannot recommend it any higher. But he talks about this idea of love and critique. And how there has to be this balance. Uh, Critique without love becomes overbearing. It becomes hurtful. Love without true critique becomes flattery. But when you've got that good balance, you're able to speak to people truth. And call them out of lies. And so what Paul does here is essentially he says, look, I love you so much. It wasn't even in my initial plan to go to you. I got sick. God sent me to you. That is where I was. And while there, I became like you. You became brothers to me. I agonized over you. Agonized over you because I loved you. And Paul is saying, look, I love you. And this is why I am saying these things. And the same can be said for, for us. Look, we love you. As, as a staff, as elders, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we love you. And that is why we say these things. Don't just hear critique. Don't just hear the fist, the hammer. Hear love. But now, going back to this idea that even our idols were meant to point us to God. um, Remember what we just said. Our idols are good things that we make God things. They're all created things that are meant to point us to God. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's saying you want to be enslaved by it, but you're not even seeing its primary function. Its function is not to rule over you. Its function is to point you to Jesus. So when Jesus came, if you missed him, that means you missed the law in its entirety. All of these things. Dominion was meant to point us to God, right? God gave us dominion. That's a part of being created in his image so that we could give it back to him. Family... This should be obvious. He gave us husbands and wives to point to the fact that that's how he relates to us. He gave us sex to remind us that he is a God who creates and gives us the ability to create as well. And we image and mirror God almost in the most full way when we are in a marriage and when in consummating that marriage, life is born. There's nothing more godlike, godly, than creation. So we take that thing that's meant to point us to God. Food is meant to point us to a Father who provides. The law is meant to point us to Jesus, and we miss it when we make it an idol. We miss it. The law properly understood points us to freedom in Christ through faith, not slavery through legalism. So what that means is you have to properly understand the law. You have to know the Torah. You have to know the Old Testament. With this in mind, I'm so excited about going through Genesis because we have this opportunity now to say, look, this is meant to point us to God. Like there's all these other conversations that we can have, even all these other arguments that we want to have. But at the end of the day, all of it is meant to be God's story, pointing us to a gracious God who created and who loves us and who is calling us back to himself in spite of our sin. That's the point. And we need to see that. And we see it in things like the curse. The curse. Right? The curse isn't just God flipping his lid, which he had every right to, and saying, get out. The curse has promise in it. The curse says things like this. uh, I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel. There's victory. There's a promised seed coming. The curse says things like this. Adam and Eve sowed for themselves suits of fig leaves. Right? Because of their guilt. But God does something better. He makes a sacrifice. He kills the first animal to be killed. And he takes from the skin of that animal and he covers Adam and Eve. We try to cover our own guilt with our own works, but God says right in Genesis 3 that the way that it happens is that I sacrifice something beautiful to cover you. That's the gospel. We see it in Abraham, that out of no wisdom of Abraham, no uh, thought process of his own, God calls him Abraham, Abram. At the time, calls him out and says, "I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to bestow my promises on you for no good reason, except that I'm a good and gracious and loving God." It's gospel. If you don't see in the story of Joseph, Jesus, then you're missing the point. If you don't see in the Passover, Jesus, I don't know where you've been. If you don't see in David and Goliath, Jesus conquering our giants for us, then you are creating slavery for yourself. Then you've missed the point. You've missed it. Jesus said it himself at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus with those two men. They don't know what's going on. Oh, Jesus has died. They're in tears. Jesus is standing next to them. They didn't understand. Finally, he says, hey, it's me, guys. Oh, my goodness, what in the world? And Jesus says, well, look, let's go through Scripture, and I'll explain it again. And it says he went through the law and the prophets, explaining explaining to them how all of it was about him. If you think that Abraham carrying Isaac up the hill, To sacrifice him is a great story of how we ought to be ready to do anything for God and not a story about how God provides the sacrifice that atones, Then you've missed it. So here's the thing, is you can't hover around the New Testament where it's easy. You have to read all of scripture. And then you begin to see that even our idols, all the idols that Israel had, were good things created by God for our good to point to him, to give him glory. But they worshipped the thing instead of the maker. We all do the same. That's our state at birth and before God knows us. And so let's look at this allegory because here's the thing. Paul doesn't choose an easy one. Paul doesn't say David and Goliath. Paul chooses one and you're like, what? Seriously, Hagar is Mount Sinai? Paul, you sure? Apparently he is because he wrote it down and sent it to them. So here we get this picture. If you remember, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, and from that child would be many children, many nations, that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that through his seed, his singular offspring, Jesus, remember from like three weeks ago that, his singular offspring, Jesus, the entire world would be blessed. But Abraham does not have faith in God. Why? Because he worships the natural order. Abraham and Sarah say that I am barren and beyond child-bearing years, scientifically, get out of here. Practically, get out of here. They don't worship God fully. They don't trust God. And so Sarah comes up with a plan. She should have seen that this plan would not be a great plan. But she was blinded by idolatry. She says, Abraham, take my slave. Bear for me a child. Abraham does it. And from this slave woman comes Ishmael, a slave child. Right off the bat, Sarah's like, oh, that doesn't make me as happy as I thought it would. Like, it turns out that I'm the problem, not him. She's angry. Nonetheless, Believe it or not, God keeps his promise. And then she has a child. So now we have two sons, and technically, which one is supposed to be the heir? The firstborn, but he's a slave. And so God casts him out and gives the promise to the child of the free. And you read that and say, man, it would have been better for everyone if Abraham and Sarah had just believed. And now Paul says, no, you can read this allegorically. Hagar is Mount Sinai, which is mind-blowing to any Jew because Mount Sinai is a great place. In fact, it's the greatest mountain that they know, because that's where God met them. He gave them the law. He he made them officially His people in many regards. He says, "No, that's that's the slave. Jerusalem is." The free woman. In scripture, there are two mountains. There are two mountains that are huge, and Paul says it here. There's Mount Sinai, there's Mount Calvary. From Mount Sinai comes slavery. But from from Mount Calvary comes freedom. Here's the final point. The gospel has the power to take us from Sinai to Jerusalem, from Sinai to Calvary. The gospel has the power to transform slaves into children. This is the whole point. It says, what do the scriptures say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, Jews and Gentiles alike. We are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman. In Christ, you move from putting things out of order and putting them into their proper place. How do you deal with idolatry? You worship Jesus. You worship him. And here's the thing, is it's not anything that you can do. If you remember in the beginning, I said that idols always say this. They say, work harder. Do more. Bear more of the load. Increase your burden. With idols, the goal is always just out of reach. But Christ has done all that needs to be done. Jesus says, come to me, you whose burden is heavy. And I'll take it. And I'll give you mine. Jesus says, find rest in me. Jesus is not out of reach. Jesus made his tent with us. What, is, what, is the, or what does the Apostle John say in his gospel? That the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. What did he see? in his revelation, in the revelation that Jesus gives him, he sees the Son of Man, Jesus, walking amid the seven lampstands. He is with us. He's not out of reach. The call of the gospel, the power of the gospel is this, that a great and gracious and loving God in the midst of, Of our rebellion against him in the midst of us taking things that he made for our good and turning them into our God, which led to our destruction, sent Jesus, who on the cross called us out of bondage and into freedom. You don't have to be a slave anymore. In Christ, there is freedom. And so for some of you, for some of you, you have not yet experienced the freedom that comes in Christ. Uh, Some of you are doubters. Some of you are skeptics. And you've heard these words, and the Spirit of God is pushing on your heart, saying, Turn away from your idols. Let me renew them. Hear that call and respond to it. For some of you, you want to follow Jesus, but you are bound up in legalism. You are bound up in trying to work out salvation on your own. You are failing, and it is destroying you. And for you, hear this call now. Turn back to Jesus. Trust in Christ's work. We're gonna hear again a song that we sang in the beginning and it just so brilliantly ties up what it is that we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus, I come. And here's the reality, is that God saves us out of slavery and into freedom. He saves us out of ourselves and into himself. And that happens as the Spirit moves in us and we respond in faith. And so now as we hear this song again, you have an opportunity to respond in faith. If you have not known Jesus, you have a chance to tell him through prayer that you respond. Let me be clear about this. There is no magic prayer. There is no set of words that said in a particular order compels God, demands that God save you. This is no prayer that saves you, but as you pray, respond to what God has already done in Christ. And so in this time, we're going to hear the song. It's a time for you to respond however you see fit. If it's in your seat in silent prayer, if it's on your knees where you are, if it's at the altar, uh, it doesn't matter. Take these moments to remember Jesus who brings us out of slavery and into God's family. Because remember, that main point again is that Jesus has saved and is saving you, us, out of slavery and into God's family. If you will